We'll be looking this Lord's Day as our text at Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 19. What do your words reveal about you when you are in the midst of tragedy, trial, affliction, and persecution. In such times of hardship, God lays bare the very issues of life and reveals what's in our own hearts. All pretense and superficiality flee in the face of trials. And there is revealed in our lives one of two responses. One, faith. Faith in Jehovah Jireh, that is, in the Lord who provides. Like Joshua, who saw the same giants as did the other ten spies. But he believed the promise of God who had promised that he would give to them the land. Or, the other response that will be revealed in our lives will be that of unbelief. Like Israel of old, who though they witnessed God pour forth upon Egypt ten astounding and amazing plagues in order to deliver them, and beheld the Red Sea as it parted before them, and they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. And as they beheld, God sent food from heaven above to feed them. As they heard with their ears Almighty God speak from Mount Sinai and give to them the Ten Commandments. Yet they proceeded to reveal their unbelief in such a loving, faithful, and mighty God by complaining, He cannot provide for us here in this desolate wilderness. In fact, he brought us out of Egypt in order to destroy us and our children. Dear ones, it's so easy to proclaim with God's people each Sabbath day when we're all gathered together in this kind of a setting, yes, I believe the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I believe the Lord is my provider in regard to all my needs. Do we practice it when we leave the communion of the saints? And we are all by ourselves, with our own thoughts, with our own trials, with our own afflictions. Do we practice that when we come under the assault of the enemy? Through God's most loving and powerful hand. This Lord's Day, I would like to turn your attention to one who was well acquainted with suffering, affliction, and persecution. The Apostle Paul. And yet one who has left us a glorious testimony to his overcoming faith in all adversities of life, which is summarized for us in three truths concerning which he was absolutely certain. Three truths concerning which he was was certain. First of all, the first truth is that of contentment. Contentment can be learned. That's the first truth. Contentment can be learned in Philippians 4, verses 11 through 12. Second, strength can be secured. 
in Philippians 4.13. And number three, all needs will be supplied. Philippians 4.19. Let us consider together the first of these important truths that Paul was absolutely persuaded and convinced of. Contentment can be learned. Look with me, Philippians 4. And we'll begin with verse 10 and read through verse 12. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Permit me first to give a little background information about the establishment of this church in Philippi. Paul was on his second missionary journey in about 52 A.D. This is approximately 20 years after the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had experienced a most distressing illness in Galatia, perhaps an eye disease, which drastically affected his vision. Then the Spirit of God, as he moved on from Galatia to continue his missionary journey, would not permit him to preach the gospel in Asia. And when he attempted to enter the Roman province of Bithynia, again, the Spirit of God would not suffer him to enter into that particular land to preach the gospel. And so, Paul with Silas and Timothy, they traveled to the coastal town of Troas, where he received a vision of a man from Macedonia calling him, to come across the Aegean Sea to Macedonia in order to preach the gospel. Upon crossing the sea, Paul traveled to Philippi, where he was beaten, placed in stocks, cast into jail for having delivered a poor girl from an evil spirit of divination. That was his crime. He delivered and set free a poor girl from this evil spirit. While singing and praising the Lord in that prison cell, the Lord sent an earthquake and the doors were swung open. The stalks fell from their their hands and their feet. They were free. The jailer, upon coming to this scene, was was so taken by this that his prisoners had, he thought, left the prison cell that he was ready to take his own life when Paul cried out that they were all present and accounted for. This gave Paul the opportunity to preach the gospel to this Philippian jailer and to his household who professed faith and his entire household was baptized. So that when Paul and Silas left Philippi the next day, there was left behind a small little congregation. 
perhaps maybe even to the size of this congregation. Just a few people. Philippian jailer and his household, Lydia and her household, and maybe a few others. You see, out of Paul's suffering and affliction, a church was formed in Philippi to the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul most, wrote, most likely wrote this letter to the church of Philippi some 11 or 12 years later after the church was founded, toward the end of his first Roman imprisonment in about 63 or 64 A.D. Note the references to his imprisonment in chapter 1 of Philippians, where in verse 7, verses 13, 14, and 16, you find references to his bonds, to his chains. Despite the fact that Paul had been stoned and left for dead, whipped with the painful Roman lash upon his bare back, bound with chains in a cold, damp prison cell, maligned and lied about while he was in prison, unable to defend himself against his accusers. People denied that he was an apostle, and he was deserted by very close friends in this time of isolation. This epistle to the Philippians is filled with constant expressions of thankfulness, joy, peace, and contentment. As Paul now draws this letter to a close in chapter 4, he does not want the emphasis that which is left in the minds of the Philippians to be his needs, his afflictions, his suffering, but rather he desires that what be left in their minds, what they be primarily focused upon, is the sufficiency of Christ, the power of Christ, to meet all of their needs, regardless of what they are going through. Here he was languishing in prison and his desire is not to complain about his trials, but rather his desire is to encourage his fellow believers, his Philippian brethren, to look in faith to Jesus Christ. And so the first undeniable truth with which Paul closes this letter again is this. Contentment can be learned. Why was Paul in prison? Had he committed some crime worthy of imprisonment? No, he was imprisoned. For preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Jews did not like it. And I'm sure Paul could have given a hundred reasons why he should not be in prison. Could have complained, this isn't fair. It's not right. Lord, I was simply doing your will. And here I find myself isolated and all of these, these things have befallen me. Or doing what was your will. But he knew that this was not by his appointment, but by God's appointment. And he was content to be there knowing that the Lord could do him no harm. In fact... The Apostle Paul, in chapter 1, Philippians, talking about his bonds, doesn't view himself as being the captive, 
Rather, he views the jailers who are chained to him as being his captive audience. They can't get away. They're there, and they're going to hear the gospel. And as a result, there were many who were brought to Jesus Christ. As he closes this particular epistle, he talks about those guards within the Praetorian Guard who had come to Jesus Christ. The Greek Stoics use this very Greek word that's used here for contentment, autarkes, to describe their own self-sufficiency. What they meant was they didn't need anything outside of themselves to be content. They believed themselves to be completely self-sufficient. This is also the doctrine that is often espoused by those within Eastern religions. Look inside of yourselves to find the God inside of you, to find peace and joy and contentment. The dear ones, all looking to ourselves to be sufficient is pure vanity and futility. Altogether worthless to look inside of yourselves to find your sufficiency. For such a philosophy denies that man is in fact finite. He's limited. He is not completely self-sufficient. Furthermore, it denies the fact that man is a sinner, that he has fallen short of the glory of God. There is corruption that has affected his thinking, that has affected his, his decisions, his will, and his emotions so that he cannot even will and desire to do apart from Christ and apart from God's grace. He cannot desire that which is right and holy and pleasing to the Lord as God. So you see, dear ones, the fact that man is both finite and corrupt due to sin makes all men absolutely insufficient so that they must look to God for their sufficiency. That's one extreme, those who look inside of themselves to find their sufficiency. But there is also the man and the people who look outside of themselves, not to God, but to everything else, to find the sufficiency, to find their peace and their contentment. They go to the opposite extreme, and they indulge themselves with every pleasure outside of themselves to find true contentment. But there is always something that man can find that he doesn't have and that he wants. And until he gets it, he's not going to be satisfied. He's not going to be content. He's not going to have peace until he catches that elusive butterfly. This man is never content, either because he cannot actually get what he wants, or when he does get it, he loses it, or if he does have it, all the time that he has what he wanted, he fears losing it. So that he is preoccupied with fear about not being able to hold on to what really makes him happy. I would ask you, dear ones, what would make you content in this life? What would bring true joy to you in this life? What would you place in this blank? If I only had blank, 
I would be content in this life. What would you put in there? What would finally put an end to all our murmuring, complaining, self-pity, and envy? A good-paying job? A beautiful home? A brand-new car? No more bills? No more taxes? Perhaps reformation within this nation would bring true contentment. Uh, maybe a loving husband or submissive wife or obedient children or parents that would allow us to have more freedom or health, wealth, fame, security. What? You see, there's nothing inherently wrong with those items as if they're sinful in and of themselves. But if you have to have them in order to be content, then you will never know contentment in this life. You'll never know it. I don't want to sound like an Arminian at this point, but there is a sense in which true contentment is a choice each of us makes every day. We either choose to be discontent by looking to persons or things in this life as the source of our joy, or we choose by God's grace to be content by looking to Christ alone as the source of our joy and our contentment. The Lord has indeed said in 1 Timothy 6.17 that He has given us all things to enjoy. He wants us to enjoy the things that He has blessed us with. But we, those things with which He has blessed us are not the source of our joy. So that if He takes them from us, we're no longer joyful. If he takes our health from us, you know, we're absolutely miserable. We can't live in that state of being unhealthy. Or if he takes our money, our finances from us so that we're burdened with great debt, that we can no longer be happy or joyful or content. However, dear ones, we can never, we can never blame our lack of joy on not having certain things in this life for it is the gift and privilege of the Christian to be content in every circumstance in which he finds himself. That's a privilege and a gift. It is a grace which God gives to every Christian to be content. It is only, again, either our ignorance or sin that prevents us from being content with what God has blessed us. Paul says in, in uh, this passage that he had learned that word, learned in whatsoever state he was to be content. He did not immediately possess this grace in all of its fullness upon becoming a Christian. He possessed the grace because God gives to all of us this grace. He didn't possess it in its fullness. But rather, he received the grace of contentment from Christ as a gift. And he began to, to exercise that grace of contentment in every circumstance in which he found himself. When he was suffering persecution, as the whip fell upon his back, he learned in the midst of the whipping 
to be content and to rejoice in the Lord, to find that that whip could not take his joy from him. That the desertion of all of his friends, the lies that were told about him, could not take his joy and his contentment and his peace from him. And you may ask, how did he do that? How did that come about? Well, I dare say to you that the answer to the how is found in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 21, where he said, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The reason why Paul could learn contentment in all circumstances is that Jesus was his life. Jesus was not simply one aspect or one part of his life. Jesus Christ was his life, his reason and his purpose for living. So that whenever he was wanting... And lacking. Whenever he was abased and humbled, whenever he was ill and sick, whenever he was stoned and whipped and imprisoned, whenever he was deserted by his closest friends, whenever he was exalted and blessed with much, Jesus Christ was his life in all of those circumstances. He saw by faith Christ in every single circumstance and saw that Christ intended His blessing. He understood that Jesus Christ could do Him no harm regardless of whatever circumstance He found Himself in. It was impossible for Christ to do Him harm. And dear ones, when Christ is our life, consciously, we as Christians certainly profess Jesus Christ is our life. But when we practice that and live according to that particular truth on a daily basis, when Jesus Christ is our life and when Christ in all of his love and faithfulness and in all of his power and his holiness and his righteousness is seen in every circumstance of life, how can we not be content in all circumstances? Paul wasn't perfect. He learned it. And he shares that he learned it so that we too can have hope that we can learn contentment as well. Have you ever considered that when you find yourself discontent, Overcome with discouragement, wallowing in self-pity, that at that point in time, something or someone other than the Lord Jesus Christ has become your life. And that is the reason you're so miserable. That is the reason you're so discontent. If Christ were consciously at that point your life, and you are dwelling, meditating, and thinking upon that. If you were, by faith, embracing Him at that point, you would not be discontent, for you would see Him ministering to you 
with the eye of faith as clearly as Daniel in the lion's den could see the angel restraining the mouth of the lion and protecting him. You would see the Lord just as much in every circumstance of your life as did Daniel at that point in time. Paul said, For to me to live is Christ. What is it for you to live? What is it for you to live? Beloved, Jesus Christ is all sufficient to make us truly content in this life. And the only reason we as Christians have not learned contentment in our lives is because we have not learned consciously to make Christ our life by faith on a daily basis. To make Him our life in our disappointments. To make Him our life in our discouragements, in our pains, in our trials, and in our afflictions. And when Christ is consciously our life, even the threat of death itself cannot discourage us. For Paul says, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To die is profit. Why? Because death can only usher us into the very presence of Him who is our life. We don't lose anything when we die. We gain everything. And that is the theme of our life. Dear ones, there is hope for all who trust in Jesus Christ. For contentment can be learned by God's grace. The only question is, will you exercise that faith and learn to be content? The second main point is this. Strength can be secured. Look with me at Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Upon hearing... Paul say, I've learned contentment in all circumstances. No doubt the immediate cry of the child of God who realizes his own sinful tendencies and his own finite inadequacies is to, to say this, I don't have the strength to learn this contentment in my life. If you only knew how very weak I am when it comes to giving in to discouragement, to self-pity, to worry, to complaining, to envy, and to discontentment. If you only knew how frail and weak I am in that area. When life doesn't go the way that I want it to go, when my plans are disappointed, when trials overwhelm me, I seem to simply cave in. Well, I'm glad to hear you confess that, if that's the case. I confess it too. Let's all confess it together. We must confess we can't do it in our own strength. For then we're ready to hear the only way by which we can learn contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And this is the second truth presented at the end of this letter which gave to Paul an overcoming faith and caused him to rejoice greatly that he could do all things he could learn contentment 
in all circumstances because it was not his strength but it was the power and the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as, Paul, just as Christ was Paul's life and his reason for living, so Christ was Paul's strength and his power for living. Do you think that one who could victoriously overcome and conquer death could also give strength to weak, struggling Christians? We need to learn how to be content in all circumstances in their life. You think that one who has overcome sin and death and Satan and sits at the right hand of God Almighty can give that kind of strength? To say otherwise would be blasphemy. To say that God could not give that strength would be utter blasphemy. If the Lord overcame all the forces of darkness during his ministry on earth, casting out demons as he did, healing the sick, if he secured our justification through his death on the cross, if he secured our, our adoption, our sanctification, our glorification, is there anything so great that he is not greater still? How big is your God? If he's about this size, you can put him into a box, then don't expect to be content in any situation. But if he fills the universe, and even the universe which he has created cannot contain him, and he has no limitations, no boundaries, if that is your God whom you serve and in whom you trust, He has the strength to give to you peace and contentment. The verb that's used here in Philippians 4.13 I can do. I can do. Or I am able is in the indicative mood of fact and reality. I can do. It is not in the subjunctive mood of mere possibility or even probability. It's in the mood of fact, of certainty. Is this the promise to which your struggling faith clings today? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If so, you will have the strength of Christ to learn contentment in all circumstances. And even more than that, Paul says, I can do, not some things, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. That is, I can do all things which the Lord gives me to do in my calling. Whatever He has called me to do, Whatever you are in your particular life called to do, He can give you the strength to do all things that He has called you to do. If in our calling the Lord would have us suffer the loss of a loved one, a spouse, a child, or a parent, He will give us the strength in that situation and use it for His glory. 
If in our calling the Lord will give us an audience to whom we might proclaim his truth, those who would hear the gospel, he will give you the strength to speak to them the truth, the boldness and the courage to say what is right. If in our calling the Lord would give us a thorn in the flesh to subdue our pride, he will give us the strength to make us and make his power perfect in our weakness, as he did with Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 to 10. And if in our calling he blesses us with health or wealth, he will give us the strength to use it to extend his kingdom rather than to pour it upon ourselves and to use it selfishly and merely to indulge our own lustful flesh. I can do all things through Christ. strengthens me. We can always seek the Lord to heal us, dear ones. We can always call out to the Lord to heal us when we are sick. We can call out to the Lord to grant us our daily bread. We can pray that the Lord would turn an unfavorable circumstance into a favorable one with which to glorify Him. But dear ones, can we be content if He does not alter that hardship or that trial for which we have prayed? Can we be content and rejoice in the midst of it because Christ is still our life, our reason, and our purpose for living? The Puritan divine Thomas Brooks has written, In God is fullness, all fullness, infinite fullness. And if this with a little of the world will not satisfy thee, I know not what will. If God for thy portion will not content thee, all the world will never content thee. Dear ones, there is hope for all who trust in Jesus Christ today. For strength can be secured by the grace of God. The third and final point from our text, all needs will be supplied. Look with me. Philippians chapter 4, verses... 14 through 19. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell and a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. In verses 14 through 18, the Apostle Paul rejoices in the compassionate giving, the merciful giving of the Philippians in the hour of his own need on more than one occasion. Then Paul states the third and final truth to be grasped and embraced by the Christian. And it is this. All needs in this life will be satisfied, will be supplied. All needs in this life will be supplied. God manifested in flesh 
the Lord Jesus Christ continually supplied the needs of those who fled to him in faith. You remember feeding the 5,000 by multiplying a few loaves and fishes. Healing the deaf and the dumb. Raising the dead. Forgiving the guilty and receiving all prodigal sons. Showing mercy to his own weak and struggling disciples. For Paul's God is also called in Scripture Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provideth. The Lord who provideth and supplieth all our needs. Notice the amazing promise here. Literally, it says, And my God will fill your every need. And my God will fill your every need. Not, a, not every want. Not every desire. But every need. And not necessarily what we ourselves may consider to be a need but what he himself deems at that particular point in time to be a genuine and true need. He will fill it. For example, if we need food to sustain life and it is God's will that we continue to live, he will fill that need. But if it is his will to take us to heaven, what what need is there? to fill, to give us food to eat. And we can supply a multitude of examples in like manner. Your hand is that what you need. And the Lord says, lift up your hand that is empty and I will fill it when it is a genuine need. He promises to do so. His authority, his faithfulness, his love, his entire person stands behind that promise that he will supply, he will fill every need that his children have. And if you do not receive that for which you have prayed, then perhaps it was not as needful as you thought it was. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, there the Lord tells us that we are to view him as a a father, a loving father. He says, If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? If even sinful... Fathers will give to their children that which is good and that which they know their children genuinely need. A child may think that they need, you know, candy. A parent says, no candy, because he knows that's not something that a child really needs. A child may say, I need that particular brand of shoes or, or clothing. The parent knows, no, you don't need that. You may want that. And I will fill your needs. The father gives that which is good to his child. And if we as sinful fathers do so, and desire to do so, how much more our heavenly father 
who is good, who is holy, righteous, who is loving, will give to his children that which is good and not, according to Psalm 84.11, withhold from them any good thing. And so if something is withheld from us at a particular point in time, we must assume that it was not good for us then. It was not a good thing for us, even though it appeared good to us. Because we're trusting not in our own wisdom, we're trusting in an all-wise God who sees the end from the beginning. Beloved, promises are only as good as the ability and the faithfulness of the one who makes them. There is no lack of resources or no lack of faithfulness to fill your needy hands as you lift them to the Lord Jesus. For the Lord says, or Paul says, And my God shall supply your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He's taking from his endless, infinite resources in heaven to supply your needs. Can you ever have more needs than he has resources? No. He invites you, therefore, to come as children and continue to cry out to him according to your needs. All the resources of heaven are there at his disposal to distribute to his children who cry out unto him for mercy. But again I ask in closing... Should the Lord withhold from you that which you believe is a need, will you be content? Will you be content in knowing that Jesus Christ is your life? And will you trust Him in knowing that He is infinitely wise and withholds what you have sought for your greater good? Will you believe that? If you cannot lay hold of that, you will not know contentment. If you cannot trust that God is all-wise, and he does what he does for your good. You'll not know contentment. Will you remain content in knowing Christ can do you no harm? You can have contentment in every circumstance because the Lord promises that we can do all things to Christ who strengthens us. Please stand with me in prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy faithful servants of old who have given to us the inspired scripture, which is an encouragement unto us all. That we have learned from their failures and from their successes in the faith what it is. O Lord, to walk before Thee as needy people, trusting only in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We ask our Father that Thou would encourage Thy people this day with these truths. Father, that if any be present this day, young or old, who have not placed their faith alone in Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation, that Thou would draw them unto Christ, that they would hear the voice of Christ calling to them even now to come unto Him. All ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. 
We pray, Father, that Thou would hear our prayer of thankfulness for Thine encouragement this day. For the Lord God, in giving to us these truths, we see by faith the smile upon Thy countenance as our loving Father looking down upon us and enfolding us in Thy loving arms. We pray, Father, that Thou would give to us the grace to repent and to turn from all of our sins, the sin of discouragement and, and disappointment and, and the sin of, of, uh, of self-pity, the sin, O oh Lord, of anger and unbelief, the sin of discontentment, O oh Lord, causes Father to see that Jesus Christ is our life. Let, Lord, that verse be the theme of our life, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. 
The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.